Have you ever undertaken something or tried to undertake something that you, you weren't really ready for, but you, you didn't really understand that you weren't ready for it? I, I still remember the first time I preached a sermon, if you could call it that. <laughs> I, um, it was, I've heard stories about Pastor Rick and his uh, early abilities with preaching. Let me just say, our callings are very different. Um, our pastors, they decided, this was during a youth service, they decided to pick two guys to preach briefer messages, which makes sense, you know, when you don't have very much experience. And uh, I, I don't remember actually if there were any other boys to pick from, though, than the two of us they picked. We were still the natural choices because my dad was an evangelist, the other boy's dad was a senior pastor. So we were picked. Now, I thought I understood what was going on on Sundays when the pastor preached. But as I began to prepare, it became apparent that I did not. I, I knew, I, I had no clear vision for what I was supposed to be doing. I knew that you get this from the Bible, but how you pick something from the Bible to preach on, and then what your goal is when you're preaching, I mean, it was lost on me. So basically, I prepared a report on Luke, you know, the author of the gospel and the book of Acts. And, uh, that's all it really was. It's just a, a report. It's all I knew to do. Information with, with no real trajectory, you know, no real goal. And I'm sure most of you would guess that it was boring. But I, I would say that it was more mind-numbing than boring. I mean, it was bad. And I should have had a line of people at the back all encouraging me to go in any other occupation than that. And hopefully none of you are thinking that you, you wish you had a time machine so that you could do just that. Hopefully that's not your thinking. Now, you might imagine that, that the major problem was that I had never been trained to prepare and give a sermon before. But the problem actually goes much deeper than that. See, preaching isn't mostly a matter of mechanics. That's a fallacy that comes from living in a secular age, an age where Christians sometimes mistake natural talent for spiritual gifts. They're different. Fact is, there are a number of very good preachers who have no business preaching because they're up there simply because they're, they're good at preaching. They can make a decent living at it, not because God gave them to the church and equipped them by a spirit. Problem that I had, the major problem I had was that I, I didn't understand what the church was, what God was doing in the local church. So the worst thing that could have happened to me was to have an initial success. That would have been problematic because I had the need for a, a much longer, more circuitous route to ministry. I needed to learn more things. I needed to understand and value the local church. I needed to understand how it works, not by power or by might but by his spirit. So I had a much too important role in preaching when I gave my first effort. <laughs> I needed to be put in my place. And, and this is a problem that we have in our secular age when it comes to serving God. We often think pragmatically, not providentially. And we think naturally about something that is actually supernatural. So we, we could imagine 
if we can do something, we should do it. And that's not necessarily true. We can be enamored with instruments and forget completely about the power that animates them. So when you're something, sometimes the best thing that can happen to you is to become nothing. You know, God uses nothings. Some things just get in the way. And Moses had to learn that the hard way. But God graciously has used Moses so that we don't have to learn the hard way. We can actually learn from Moses. Now, Moses wasn't learning about preaching. He was learning about deliverance, God's deliverance from oppression and injustice. So our passage this morning, it gives us three perspectives on deliverance. There's vigilante deliverance, understanding deliverance, and then divine deliverance. So you could turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, we'll start in verse 11. Again, it's on page 42 in the Pew Bible. There in Exodus 2, we're going to see, first of all, Moses' vigilante version of deliverance, and then we'll see him understanding deliverance, learning, beginning to understand it. And then finally, the first hints at divine deliverance. So the first perspective on deliverance that we see in this passage is a vigilante deliverance. So look, starting at verse 11 of chapter 2. Again, on page 42, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, that, there's a major jump that occurs at verse 11. And the last thing we knew, Moses was being weaned. And now he's an adult. Uh, in Acts 7.23, Stephen is preaching And he mentions this passage, and he gives Moses the age of 40 at this point. And that breaks Moses' life down very neatly. So in the first 40 years of his life, he's there in Egypt. And then Exodus 7-7 says that he was 80 when he goes to confront Pharaoh. So he's 40 years in Midian, and then he's another 40 years in the wilderness. So this adult Moses, he spent all these years in the Egyptian palace, he's been gaining an Egyptian education, he's been living like an Egyptian. And so he ventures out to his people, it says. And that's a deliberate move. The term used here, though, it's not people, it's literally brothers. So it's this, it's this term that does mean people in a sense, but it's talking about how close he relates to these people. There's kinship. These are his people. And so given now... Some people have questioned, you know, what, when did he realize he was a Hebrew? There's no reason to think he ever didn't know he was a Hebrew. I mean, his adoptive mom from the very beginning thought that it was perfectly appropriate for him to be nursed by a Hebrew woman. There's no reason to think this was ever a secret. He was never unaware of his, of his heritage. But it does seem that up to this point, he had never identified with his people before. So it seems that he went out specifically to look on their burdens, looking to see what they were really going through the harshness of their labor, labor. And what he came across greatly disturbed him. It says he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And then it adds that this was one of his people. So you can hear the way he's connecting with this person who's being mistreated. This person being beaten. It's a Hebrew brother. It's one of his brothers. He sees the solidarity that he has with this person who's being mistreated. And the text is actually emphatic about the fact that there's an equality between these two people. 
Even though the Egyptian would have viewed this person as just a slave, the text reads more literally, the Hebrew's a little redundant. It says, he saw a man, an Egyptian, beating a man, a Hebrew. And you know how, how much more glaring injustice is when you relate to the person experiencing it. Moses couldn't just let this go. He wouldn't just let this go. But look at what he did. It says he turned his face this way, that. That's when he acted. When nobody could see him. That's when he took action. And he ends up doing the same exact thing that the Egyptian was doing to that Hebrew. Same word. He struck him. Only the Egyptian died. We know that because he buried him in the sand. Now, some people try to defend Moses and say, you know, that he was, he was right to do this. Calvin, for instance, said that Moses was acting by the Spirit. But that furtive glance, the right and left, that gives him away. He's not doing something completely on the up and up. So we shouldn't just say, well, you know, his heart was in the right place. Because, yes, he was right to be angry about that injustice. He was right to not just be willing to let it go and ignore it, to try and do something about it. But what he did was to be judge, jury, and executioner. He had no right to even beat this man, let alone kill him. This was a vigilante justice. And I'm not the only person to to think that. The very next day, Moses went out again, according to verse 13, and he's shocked because he sees the same thing happening. One man beating another man. Now, Here's the thing, though. He wasn't shocked simply by them striking each other. He was shocked because it was two Hebrews doing it. And he's clear about which one was the aggressor. And so he addresses that person. It says, so he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? You could translate that word neighbor. It's the same word found in Leviticus 19.18, which Moses likely would have cited if it had been revealed at that point. It's where... The Lord commanded his people, you will love your neighbor as yourself. But then look at the Hebrew aggressor's response. He said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? He's saying something like, who died and made you king? Who put you in charge? And then, and, and this he says, seemingly not afraid of Moses. He seems to say this just to put him back in his place. He says, do you mean to kill me? Will you kill that Egyptian? And it worked. It shut Moses right up. He says he was afraid. He thought, surely the thing is known. For whatever reason, what he thought he had done in secrecy, it was known. It was public. And and this guy that had just blurted this out probably even made it worse. So when Pharaoh heard it, he didn't think Moses had a case. He didn't think he had an explanation. See, Moses had just turned Egyptian society on its head. Moses had just offended a Hebrew and attacked an Egyptian. He had put a slave above a citizen. And so he got put on on Pharaoh's most wanted list, right to the top. So Moses did what he probably thought he had to do. He fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian. Now, the Midianites, they were descendants of Abraham from his his wife after Sarah died, Keturah. And Dwayne Garrett pointed something out I didn't realize. He said that the Midianites at this time were most likely not Bedouins. They've actually discovered cities on the eastern side of, of the Gulf of Aqaba, in the Arabian Peninsula, or in the, uh, actually in the Saudi Arabian area. And these cities were, were developed 
So there's a clear territory. And yes, they, they, they had shepherds and the shepherds would, would go around, but there's a clear territory there. It's away from Egypt. They're not, they weren't uh, allies of Egypt. And so this is, this is the perfect place. It's a good distance from this vengeful Pharaoh. There's no fear of extradition. You know, he's, he's safe as far as he's concerned. Perfect place to hide out. And, and one commentator pointed out this, this ironic providence at work here. Because if you remember, Joseph was taken in exile, really, to Egypt by Midianite traders. And now Moses is back with the Midianites during his exile from Egypt. Now, the last thing you see in this, this section here is Moses, this humbled Moses sitting by a well. Miles away from the place he called home for years. And that is where vigilante deliverance gets you. There is a lot of good that we could say about Moses, and we're going to say that a little later. But here we want to be honest about the bad. Moses saw a problem, and he thought he was in a position to take care of it himself. Now, he did, he did know something of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were well known, and we don't know exactly how much he knew, but he did know something of the promises to his forefathers, the promises that God had given. He knew his people shouldn't be slaves. He knew that their situation was wrong. But apart from God's direction, you cannot arrive at God's promises. You need his direction. He's going to get you there. And Moses didn't do that. He tried to navigate it on his own. And the fact is there are many well-intentioned Christians who look at the problems in our world, real problems, and they want to do something about it, which is good. So they take action. You know, they, they take action, though, without understanding what's really going on. So they look at poverty, hunger, abuse. There are many problems. But the fact is the major, the most glaring, the most problematic problem of them all is what some have called lostness. Separation of humanity from their creator is the most horrific problem in our world and from it everything else stems so sometimes when christians take action they do that without understanding how those problems actually relate and what they relate to they're not addressing them with a biblical lens they're not prioritizing them in the way that they should so they want to solve these problems but they actually miss the most important problem a problem that's actually going to last for eternity beyond this life. So yes, it is right for us to have concerns about these other problems in our world. It was right for Moses to recognize the problem of oppression and to want to do something about it. And we're right to, to realize that there are problems in our world that, that should be addressed. And if we're in a position to do something about them, then we shouldn't be those who sit on our hands. But they all have a root problem. So we have to consider that root problem before we simply try to address what we see. Now, Moses did see this as more than just oppression. So he recognized that there was a spiritual component to it in a sense. Both Stephen in Acts 7 and the author to the Hebrews, the author of, the, of Hebrews in chapter 11, they both recognized that Moses knew something about this people. He knew they had a connection to God. So he wasn't just addressing a physical problem. He was addressing a spiritual problem. 
And I, as Stephen puts it, I think he thought he was doing what God wanted. To some degree, he believed God wanted this to be addressed, and he thought he was in a position to do something about it. But again, he was attempting to do that in his own strength and wisdom. So there are, again, numerous Christians who, who look at lostness. They, they recognize that there is a spiritual problem, but they still try to address that with their own wisdom, their own strengths, their own abilities. That's how they approach it. So sometimes when you look at different people that are using different approaches than what the Bible says, it looks successful. They're being very pragmatic. You know, this is the way that we can, we can reach the lost the best, but it's not from the Bible. Really what they're attempting is what I'd call a vigilante deliverance. They're taking the law in their own hands. And just like with Moses, it does come out. Truth comes out. In the end, according to 1 Corinthians 3, the truth will come out. As it puts it, the day will disclose it. Whatever you attempt to do for God that isn't by his directions will come out in the end. And, and it comes out disastrously, just like with Moses. Because the truth is, based on what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians, is our entire labor for God can burn up in judgment when we choose to do what is pragmatic, what is not directed by God. It looks successful on the outside for a time. But we need to listen to God. We do not take the law into our own hands. We do not even approach ministry with our own wisdom, with our own efforts. We depend on God to give us the direction. So a vigilante deliverance is not the way to go. And there, there Moses sits by a well. This is where he's going to begin. Start to understand what the deliverance really is all about. So that's where we find the second perspective on deliverance in this passage. That Moses begins understanding deliverance. There is this slight pause at verse 16 that, that signals the next episode based on the wording there in Hebrew. So Moses is there at a well. This is a social meeting place really for a society that's in a semi-desert or desert especially in a society full of shepherds. I mean, even the, one of the priests of Midian had, had flocks. The text doesn't actually require that Raoel is the only priest of Midian. But he, he has evidently no sons. He has seven daughters. And it just so happens that they're the ones bringing their father's flock to the well for water at right this time as Moses is sitting down there. So they came up to the well, they drew water, they filled the troughs so that their animals could eat. And then what happens? Or drink. And what happens? But these other shepherds come and they chase them off. They drive them away so that they can use the well. It's just those shepherds don't realize who's sitting down next to the well. This is a guy who has a bit of a sensitivity to mistreatment, especially when it involves people who look down on some, someone who's considered lower class. So Moses isn't just going to sit there. He's, he, says he stood up and he saved him. And the word saved, it's not actually used a great deal in Exodus, but the only other use is in Exodus 14.30 where it mentions the Lord saving Israel from the hand of the Egyptian, the Egyptians. And not only that, but it says that Moses also watered their flock. Again, something that the Lord is going to do for Israel. He's going to provide water for them. So Moses is in a way doing the Lord's work here. But this time it fits. This time it, he doesn't go too far. And there's a different result. The girls, they, they run home to their father with their flocks. And, and 
notice that, that Roel is, is surprised to see them this early. Evidently, this is not the first time they've been mistreated. It's evidently pretty regular. They're coming home too soon. And so, he, listen to how they, he asks what, what's going on and listen to what they say, how they explain it. They say in verse 19, they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So to them, Moses is an Egyptian. And maybe he walked like an Egyptian. I talked like an Egyptian. I wore clothing like an Egyptian, slowly making its way through the. He looks like an Egyptian. Rawel's response is really the classic response of a father with youth, right? <laughs> he says, well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? He's a very polite way of saying, what were you thinking? You should have asked the guy to come here for a meal to say thank you to him. And that's what he, he tells them to do. So at, at this verse, there's really a fast-forwarding that happens. You know, Moses' life just goes at light speed at this point. But the way that we see Moses' life, it looks kind of familiar. And last time we saw somebody at a well getting a wife, it was a patriarch. In fact, there's two patriarchs that this happened to. Isaac gets his wife. Now, he's not there, but gets his wife through a well encounter. Jacob, the same thing. And Jacob's in, also involved this heroic gesture. So we have, an, in essence, you know, Moses being compared to the patriarchs. So Moses marries Lady Bird. That's how Walt Kaiser translates to Pura, Lady Bird. And, and then after this unspoken amount of time, the two of them have a son, and, and Moses names the son Gershom. Now, that's a family name. He didn't invent it. It seemed to be a family name in First Chronicles. But the reason that he chose that particular name was because it sounded like these two other Hebrew words, Ger meaning sojourner and Sham meaning there. A sojourner there. Now, not everybody agrees on where there is. Some people think that he's saying that he was a sojourner in Egypt. Other people think he's saying he's now a sojourner in Midian. Um, some people point to the tense of the verb to try to make their argument. That wouldn't help because he's been in Midian for a while, so that doesn't help us out. So, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter where he's saying that he's a sojourner whether it's Egypt or Midian, the important thing is that he's finally experiencing the plight of his people, as another commentator put it. When, when Moses arrived, remember the locals viewed him as an Egyptian, right? He, he had grown up that way. He'd grown up as an Egyptian in an Egyptian environment. You know, he had the fine foods, a good education. He was really away from all the difficulties that his, his people were experiencing. He didn't go through that. They felt the weight of of their place in society. They were made aware daily that they were sojourners, that they did not belong in Egypt. And now finally Moses has that feeling. He experiences what they experience. He doesn't belong. And that's going to enable him to understand what God's really doing with this deliverance. Now, as we'll see, Moses, he made the right choice in identifying with God's people. You're not going to be a good leader if you're not a part of what everybody else is going through. He's a part of that experience. He's not going to lead God's people without being a part of God's people. He had to understand what was going on, what they were experiencing from within in order to lead. The problem that Moses had is just like the problem we have. Sometimes God's education takes a little too long for us. He very impatiently wanted to take care of it immediately when he thought he could, when he had the ability to do it. But he, again, he didn't understand what was really going on. He needed some time to learn 
about God's deliverance. And the truth is, we're like Moses. We're all immersed in these circumstances we're in. You know, we, we're born into them. We eat, sleep, breathe in our cultural surrounding. We don't even realize how much a, a part of it we are. So sometimes we have to be wrenched away from everything we know so that we can finally escape the perspective of our age. You know, this, this secular society that we're in that makes us and encourages us to, to view things in this way that's really devoid of God. It doesn't always have to be drastic like it was with Moses, but leaders especially need to leave this secular fishbowl that we're in. We need to be able to step outside of it, see that things aren't just material, that there is a God at work. If we're going to lead others the way that God truly is delivering them and in line with that, we need to understand it. And so God's deliverance does not happen the way that we would expect it to happen. It doesn't happen by way of natural conditions or processes. God's deliverance is supernatural. Does not come by power or by might, but by his spirit. And thankfully, God graciously teaches us that. He tells us by his word, by his spirit, that he is ultimately the one. Who delivers. And that's the last perspective we see in this text. And the last perspective on deliverance here is divine deliverance. Starting in verse 23. So while Moses is seemingly puttering away there in, in Midian, life's still happening in Egypt. And it's something momentous happens. It says the king of Egypt died, but it didn't change their circumstances. Because the next thing you read, it says, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now, the text doesn't say that they were crying out to God. It doesn't say that. These are outbursts that come from suffering. You know, groans from discomfort. Crying out for someone, anyone to help them. But, those cries did go to God. That last statement even though they, they didn't put an address on it, rather, it, it does say that their cries went up to God. And then that's followed by these four other statements. And each statement explicitly gives God as the subject, which sounds a little redundant. You know, even in English, we, we typically would put a pronoun in there. Wouldn't say it the way that it's said here. Hebrew's the same way. Typically, it doesn't just repeat the subject that many times. This is making an emphatic statement. It says, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. The fact that he heard these groanings, that, that does hint at his compassion. He's paying attention. He's not, he's not just out there and, and uninvolved. He hears what's going on. And then the next statement's incredibly important. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God had made this solemn agreement with Abraham, and then with his son Isaac, and then with Isaac's son Jacob. He made this solemn promise that he was going to make them into this great nation, that he was going to give them the land. And then it says he remembered that. that. That verb translated remembered, it doesn't mean that God forgot any more than when it was used with Noah, if you remember. There in the middle of the flood, it says in Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and all the beasts 
all the livestock that were with him in the ark. That word means God is about to act. He's about to keep his promise. Now, we could just point to the the covenant promises, but there was an even more specific promise that God had made in Genesis 15. He says there, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. You know, things often seem out of control for us. But everything was happening according to plan, according to God. So verse 25 in Exodus 2 it may seem a little odd when you, when you just read it. If you pull it out and read it, it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You know, what, what is it really saying? That actually connects especially back to the, the first statement of verse 24. God heard their groaning. God heard their cry. He saw them and he knew. Back in Genesis 18, the Lord had revealed to Abraham that he really is the judge of the whole earth. And back in that context, the Lord appeared through these three angels to him, and he told him in Genesis 18:20 that this outcry had come up to him. He heard it. And then what is he going to do about it? He sent these three angels, two of them are going to go down to the cities to do what? Verse 22, the Lord says, "I will go down." to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. It's the language of a judge who's about to act in Genesis 18. He is coming to earth. He is coming here to make his ruling, his verdict. He's coming to carry out the sentence that the people deserve for their, this, this cry for justice. He will see, he will know. Justice is going to be delivered. But the tense here is not future. It's not that he's going to see, he's going to know. Look at what it says. God saw and God knew it's about to get real in Egypt. I mean, God's coming. And he's not just going to come and, and figure things out. This is saying he's figured it out. He's the judge. He's about to execute the sentence. He's about to act. He sees the mistreatment. He's going to address it. He knows. Knows the verdict. Knows what needs to happen. So you might feel like he doesn't. Might feel like God doesn't know what's going on with me. He doesn't see what I'm I'm experiencing. But he really does. He knows. There was a gentleman down in Florida. <clears throat> he was a member of our church there. He had some developmental de- delays. He, he had some mental disabilities. But he had faith in God. And I, I never really interacted with him a lot, but our church secretary did. And she would always tell these stories about how whatever he was going through, he was going through all these difficulties, or maybe she was going through a difficulty. His response was always the same. He would simply say, God knows. God knows. That's all he'd say. If you you get nothing else out of this passage, you just need to remember that God knows. You may not think he knows, but he does. 
He sees what's going on. And his knowledge isn't this passive knowledge. It's not like he's just observing. Oh, yep, okay, I see what's going on there. It's a knowledge that's going to lead to action. He's going to act for the good of his people. At the same time, we need to keep in mind who we are. And yes, we, we do compare with God's people in the story. We are God's people. God is going to address. He knows what we're going through. He is going to address the things one day that we're going through. But who are we? Are we the people God chose because we stood out from everybody else? We're the really good people. The really wise people. Remember, the Israelites, they're helping us see who we really are. We're rebellious people. We reject God. We are just like that guy, that aggressive Hebrew in verse 14. I mean, you've got you to think about how this story would have hit the original audience. The people who read this first knew exactly who Moses was. They're not surprised. It, it's not like Moses is some guy, oh, I'm just reading about Moses. I didn't know who Moses was. Moses is one of the most significant people in Israel's history. And when they read this, they knew exactly who he was. So reading what this guy said, who are you, Moses? What right do you have to tell me what to do? It'd be like reading in the biography about Michael Jordan, how his coach, his varsity coach, didn't pick him as a sophomore, to be on the sophomore team. Now, maybe that makes sense, but the fact is he chose another sophomore instead of Michael Jordan. You'd like to tell that guy, what were you thinking? Who's Leroy Smith? Leroy Smith's one claim to fame is that he's on Michael Jordan's team, and you picked him. That's what this guy's, if you're reading this story as a Hebrew, you're like, this guy's rejecting Moses' authority. This is Moses. That's one of the major themes of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. He's telling the Jewish people there as he's preaching in Acts 7, this is what you do. You reject the guy that God's going to send. It's just par for the course, what you've done with Jesus. So in, in that sermon, he's not, really, he's not really justifying Moses' actions, killing the Egyptian. But what he's saying is he's drawing out the fact Moses did think that his actions in some way were We're going to be accepted as this is from God. And the important thing to see is that people didn't care about Moses. They didn't care what he's doing. They rejected him. It's just like Joseph's brothers rejected him. Now Moses' brothers reject him too. Just like what they were going to do with David later on. This is what God's people do. They reject the person that God's going to send to address their problem. So this is the kind of people that God delivers. Really, the fulfillment of that pattern, rejecting your leaders, it was fulfilled when Jesus came. His people rejected him. He's the Messiah. But that's who God delivers. People who reject him. People who do not deserve that deliverance. People who question Anybody who tells us what to do. So in that violent setting, this man, he had learned to bully people to get what he wanted. 
That was his environment. He just picked it right up naturally. We do the same thing. We'd like to think that, you know, we're somehow different than the surrounding culture. No, we picked up everything. We live the same way. God didn't rescue us because we were different. He rescued us because we were slaves to our sin. And he was being gracious. And he was relentless with us. So the question is, how do you view yourself? Now, are you simply a person who experiences mistreatment from others? Or do you take part in it too? Do you do some mistreating? Now, are you always the victim? Or could anybody else testify to the fact that you have not loved them the way that you love yourself? Are you innocent? Or do you need something, a solution really, more than just to the bad things that happen to you? Do you need a solution to the bad things that come out of you? Because that's who Jesus came to save. Sinners. Not righteous people. They don't need saving. They don't think they do. So do you recognize your sin, your slavery to sin? If you see your true situation, understand, you're seeing that because God's helping you to see that. Helping you see that you need forgiveness. You need restoration. If you see that, believe it. Believe that Jesus came to provide that for you. And then I would, I would call you to join us as we keep learning about this deliverance. Now, Moses is a good example. He has a good example for us here, like I mentioned earlier. And the, the author of Hebrews draws that out. He says this in Hebrews eleven twenty four. He says in verses 24 through 26, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. And then verse 27 seems to be a reference to what happens at the burning, after the burning bush experience. But Hebrews, the author, is saying that there is an aspect to what, Abraham, or to what Moses was doing that is, is on the basis of his faith. He did it by faith. This is the inspired author of, of Hebrews pointing this out. So think about Moses' options. Think about what he could have done. He could have just gone on experiencing the privileges of Egypt. Kept living the good life. Or the other option was to risk everything for the sake of his people. Identify with a group of slaves when you are in the palace. So it took a belief that God's people were more significant than than the culture was telling him. That's what it takes to side with God's people. I mean, you look at the rest of the Old Testament. Look at all the people that were in positions of power and how they used it. They took advantage of those positions. They used it for themselves, the selfish ways that they used it. That's not Moses. That's not what he does with his power. He was willing to give it up. I mean, he risked it. 
for the sake of God's people. That's another thing that that furtive glance, you know, to the right and left tells you. Yes, he was getting ready to do something that wasn't on the up and up, but he was willing to take a risk. He did it the wrong way, but he was willing to risk. He, he recognized he could get in trouble for what he was about to do, and he was willing to do that by faith that, that this was the right thing that he should do, be with his people, care about them, not just maintain the status quo, not just to enjoy the privileges that right then were being secured by those slaves as they built up the defenses of Egypt. He wasn't just going to keep experiencing that. He recognized with those patriarchal promises that there was something greater than Egypt could offer. I don't know all that he knew, but he knew that there was a promise that was worth more than what Egypt had to offer, and it was worth risking everything for. So he was willing to identify with God's people, the people that had experienced this promise from God, a promise that included a promise of of a blessing as a, a conduit, really, of blessing to other people. And in the way that he was willing to identify with those people and those promises, he was, in a real way, identifying with Christ, who would be that conduit. He's identifying with these people who experienced this reproach, and by doing that, because their promises led to Christ, he was identifying with Christ and his reproach. So we do need to follow in Moses' footsteps. Admittedly, Moses didn't see things as clearly as we do. But he did have faith in what he did know. And he took action. And that's true for us. Because we could just take refuge in the benefits of our society. You know, we look like everybody else. We, we could just keep doing it. We just blend in. Can't you? You can blend in. You've grown up in this world. You know how it works. You can blend right in. Or you could risk everything by being willing to be identified with Christ who was rejected by the world and his people who continue to be rejected by the world. You could just blend in and go down with the ship. Or you can identify with your deliverer and with his people and risk being mocked and maligned and mistreated. That's what we should be willing to do and, in fact, do. Why? Because no matter what you think you can benefit from in this life, what you benefit with or from with Christ is far greater. It's not even worth comparing, as Paul describes in Romans. But Paul also told us in Romans eight seventeen that we only experience that glory with Christ provided we suffer with him now. So what Moses does here and what we need to do, it's not optional. We can't just keep our Egyptian clothing and enter the promised land. They're mutually exclusive. There are going to be points in your life where you're going to be forced to choose. Do you side with Christ? Are you a part of his people? Or do you side with the society? Are you ashamed of Christ? Will you deny Christ in that moment? 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 33. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. If you are unwilling to identify as a Christian, if you are unwilling to identify with Christ now, Christ will not identify with you when you stand before him one day. So don't try to be a closet Christian. They don't actually exist. That's what our deliverance really is all about. It's about delivering us from this sinful age. From the society that rejects God. From the culture that rejects Christ. If you can't let go of that, if you can't let go of the treasures in our culture, you will go down with the ship. And you can't deliver yourself. You can't carry out your own deliverance. That's vigilante deliverance like we, we saw. It doesn't work. You need to understand the deliverance that God is doing. He can use you, but ultimately, God is the one who delivers us. That's who we're depending on, and we should really be thankful for that. This doesn't all come down to us, our wisdom, our strength, and our effort. Join me in prayer. Father, if it came down to just our own strength and our own courage, we, we would just blend in. We, we wouldn't risk anything. We would take the, the shorter route, the easier route. So we thank you for giving us your spirit, which as Paul talks about, is not a spirit of fear, but of power. That we can depend not on our own strength, but on you. That in those moments where the, the line is drawn in the sand, we can pray. We can ask for help, knowing what we ought to do. And then we take a step of faith, relying on you. Ask for your strength, your courage to do what you call us to do in this world, to not be ashamed of Christ, to not be ashamed of his people. Help us not to, to try to do things in our own strength and our own wisdom. Help us not to ignore your direction, but give us the courage to act. Give us the courage to decide with you publicly whenever that line is drawn. And if we have failed at that, if we've been unwilling to out ourselves, unwilling to acknowledge that we're Christians, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would you would give us the courage we need. Not to just remain comfortable. Not just to remain hidden. But to stand up. And be willing to bear witness to you. Through your son. 
And if anyone here, again, does not know you, if anyone does not see themselves as they truly are, we pray that you would open their eyes to their sin, that your spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness. And he would cause them to pay attention to the good news about Jesus, that they would turn and trust in Christ. Amen.